Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. Welcome to the diversity conversation that everyone can learn from. Each fortnight, we interview guests from the world of business, culture and arts about the work they're doing to make the world a more inclusive place. I'm Asad. And I'm Ben. And in this episode, we're talking to TV presenter, author, campaigner and director of creative diversity at the BBC, June Sarpong. She's quite literally written the book on diversity, so there are a million potential angles we could explore. There's an urgency to our conversation today, though. It's Pride Month, which marks the anniversary of a protest that began in New York nearly 50 years ago. Bain communities around the world are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, and Black Lives Matter rallies are being held across the world in response to the police killing of George Floyd. So today we're asking, where does diversity and inclusion go from here? It's going to be a heavy one, Ben, but I'm really excited. You could say it's going to be a heavy one, though, but we have spoken to June before, and she does have a a certain lightness of touch that she brings to the conversation. Right, well, let's go. Making diversity everyone's business. Right. Um, So welcome to the Speak Easier June. Um, We're about to kick this off with a little word association game. Yeah. All format, super simple. Ben and I are going to give you a word and you have to say the first word that comes into mind. All right. So London. Best city in the world. (laughs) Lockdown. Oh, literally. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Worst city in the world. (laughs) (laughs) How about diversity? Magic of life. Social media. Don't really know how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) And the final one before we kick off the the future. What we make it. Nice. Okay, Ju. Well, thank you for taking the time to paint a picture for listeners. It's a sunny Tuesday. um, And we have the pleasure of sitting with June Sarpong, who I grew up watching on television on your face or mine which uh, my friend Niraj and I would watch and uh, chat on MSN Messenger during to talk about how much we, how funny we found it um so so June you were a staple for a lot of people um growing up on on television and you've had an amazing journey to become the BBC's leader of creative diversity um what was it like being one of the very few black people that we saw on TV in the 90s and the noughties uh, to now being one of very few black people that are around the exec table making some very big decisions. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, that's just always been the sort of story of my life and my life's experience in that, you know, always been one of the only ones, if if not the only one. Um, and I think, you know, in part, you know, I grew up in a very multicultural area, Um and I grew up in an area that wasn't just ethnically diverse, but was also socioeconomically diverse too, because my area was becoming gentrified. So you had a lot of sort of local um, uh, kids like myself, but then there was a sort of influx of um, middle-class families um, who also were kind of do-gooders that didn't want to send their kids to private school. So they sent their kids to the local state school, which I went to, and actually it was one of the best schools in the area. So it also meant we had a fantastic PTA and had really great corporate links. But the wonderful thing about that experience, you know, and it's only when you get older that you realize how these things shape you, um, is it just meant from a very early age, I was just used to being around difference um, and got comfortable with it from a very early age. So it meant that I knew people and my family in Ghana had also been very wealthy before 
you know, the coup happened and we ended up here with nothing. So I'd always been around difference in all walks of life. So for me, that was very much a sort of part of my DNA. So even when I went into television, where again, I was often one of few, if not the only one, I never felt awkward or it didn't necessarily impact me because I've always been good at connecting with people regardless of who they are. So even someone who on the surface it would seem like I have nothing in common with, I've always been able to find that. There's always that sort of middle ground. There's that center where you can connect with somebody and find that sort of shared humanity. And when you interview people for a living, you have to get good at doing it pretty quickly in order to get somebody to open up to you. Feeling the pressure there, June, interviewing you um, and having to get good on that. I guess, where where did you grow up? Because you haven't told us that. And oh, all of them so Walthamstow that then became Awesome Stow, I guess, yes, with the middle class. It still is, yeah. Well, now it's all coffee shop. It wasn't like that when I was growing up there. Did you have any pressure within your family about going into television? Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, my family are African, so they had no interest uh, in television. They wanted me to go to university and be a doctor, you know, <laughs> a lawyer if, if I was, you know, failing. Uh, so, so for them... Um, the idea of going into radio, which is what I started in, uh, just horrified them. It's hilarious because, you know, now, you know, my mother tells everybody, oh, yes, I told her, follow her dreams. But at the time, she was like, what are you doing? You're bringing shame on the family. We did not come to the UK for you not to go to university. You know, yeah. So was there was there a tipping point when that happened? So for me, it was when I walked into HSBC or into a bank, um, <laughs> the head office. And I was like, I've made it, mum. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> Because um, we were consulting them at the time. Um, but did you have a tipping I think point? Mine was probably, mm, I think mine was probably Channel 4 because MTV was the kids of my mother's friends that were watching. You know, her friends weren't watching, but Channel 4, her friends were watching. Um, and, you know, the Ghanaian community is a very tight knit community. I mean, we all know each other. So, it was a big deal in the Ghanaian community. And, you know, now there's lots and lots of Ghanaian talent that's doing really well, you know, from the Stormzies to whoever. But, you know, when I started, I was one of, I think it was only me and Lisa Anson. So to the community, it was a big deal. So, yeah, she got kudos for that and, yeah, took the chips, as it were. <laughs> so you, you, you brought the goodness to yeah. a Wolfram State. <laughs> Um, and so how 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 has it changed like you, you've gone from from being presenter side and I remember hearing you speak and talking about makeup and hair and how no one had really catered for difference in in that space until you were in the room and now you're in the room yeah. at the BBC yeah. what are there a lot of similarities in that experience uh well you know what's really nice is I think I probably couldn't have been in the room at any other time I think it had to be now because what you have is leadership that really wants to change and wants to figure out how to get this issue right. So there's an openness and a willingness. And also what I found really impressive is also this sort of emotional intelligence at the highest level in being open to the fact that perhaps they don't know when it comes to this issue. And and that in itself is so powerful. And, and often, you know, how you really do create change when, you know, those are, are perhaps, you know, gatekeepers acknowledge that maybe on this issue, 
this isn't their area of expertise when it comes to spreadsheets and a bit dar and goodness knows what else. Yes, that is their area of expertise, but maybe on this one, there are blind spots and actually getting people who either have the lived experience uh, or have real close proximity to the lived experience. You know, in, in your case, Ben, you have a mixed race son. So the way you understand this issue is completely different to someone who doesn't have a loved one in their life who sort of experiences some of these discriminations day in, day out. So it's really important to be open to the fact that you might not know. And 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 one of the things that I've been doing um, at the BBC is really sort of championing the idea of to, to sort of dismantle the need to defend. Because often when this issue is raised, those from the majority group, because, you know, the worst thing you can be accused of is anything in this territory. So those from the majority group often feel the need to defend um, and somehow close down the conversation. And in defending, it means that if somebody is expressing their lived experience, they can't do that if you won't just be open to the fact that maybe this is their lived experience. And maybe there are things that you are doing unintentionally, because we are all a product of our environment and our conditioning, that may be making this person feel like they perhaps don't belong. And so that is the thing that I've been really sort of pushing, that when this stuff comes up, don't go to your default position of, oh, or your default position of just kind of closing it down. Go to a new position of being open to listen and see where that takes the conversation. You might be pleasantly surprised. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that openness to listen is something that's very much on people's minds now um, in response to what's going on in the States. Yeah. It's, uh, it's Blackout Tuesday today. And uh, that, for people that don't know, is a day when the music industry will effectively pause everyday op operations to protest police violence against the black community. Yeah. They say it's a day for reconnection, uh, which is what we're doing today. Because uh, when we first spoke about uh, the professional word of, of diversity and inclusion, we agreed that as we begin to emerge from the COVID-19 crisis, uh, it was already going to be very challenging. Yeah. Uh, but we had an opportunity to rebuild and rebuild better and get things right. Yeah. Where are we now? You know what's really interesting, Ben? We are at a place, I don't know, I don't know if we've been here in my lifetime anyway, where white people are really being open to the idea that perhaps systemic racism actually does exist and that maybe there's a way that your privilege can inadvertently make you complicit and and actually being aware of how that might play out in real life and wanting to know how to be allies and that that i've never had that i mean since the george floyd incident the amount of my white friends and colleagues that have called me up and very high profile ones as well you know not not just people that you know like yourself are in this day in day out really sort of you know active in it no just you know everyday tv hosts and actors living their lives saying oh my god what can i do to be a part of the solution and i think what that provides is a place for a real conversation to happen but also active participation in creating whatever the new is and i think what's really important is also being mindful 
of how your decisions impact other people. So even if you're in a position to hire, what is that process like? You know, who are you more comfortable with in that interview process? And actually, are you going outside of your comfort zone to look at somebody with fresh eyes? Because we know we have this sort of ingrained idea of what leadership looks like just because of the way we've all been conditioned. And so it's very hard to accept a leader that comes in a different package. And it's like being open to that. So I I think this coupled with everything that's going on with COVID and climate change, you know, there's so many things going on that I do believe that we're at a crossroads where we we literally cannot go back to how things were. And what we decide next will sort of determine the next hundred years. And I think that people who perhaps have been blissfully ignorant of some of the injustices that it, that exist in our world are now opening themselves up to wanting to look at what's very uncomfortable viewing. And also what I've actually seen is a um, confidence arising in people of colour who actually also feel very vocal to talk about this stuff, whereas before you'd want to avoid it and never make anyone feel uncomfortable. I'm also seeing that happening. Um, so I'm actually quite hopeful. Um, I mean, what a price to pay um, in terms of what happened to poor George Floyd. But I, I do think some change will come out of it. I think, uh, I think what's interesting, it just occurred to me that it was just about a year ago when everyone was saying, we're not racist in this country because of Harry and Meghan. Like there was an insistence that we just weren't. Now, I think very people are very uncomfortable with the words racism and racist, but I think that I agree that people are starting to see that there are massive yeah. inequalities there and that there are subtle behaviours, things that people think are subtle behaviours, like turning to a black person that they know to answer yeah. all of their questions yeah. about racism. <laughs> I was talking I was talking to our team about it yesterday. So it's and I said it's like someone coming up to me and saying, You're white, tell me all about Queen Elizabeth the First. You know. To be fair, I do that to Ben all the time. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I've actually got I'm quite I know quite a lot about history, so <laughs> where where I'm stuck with it is Ooh. this whole catch all term of BAME. June like yesterday I was asked to comment mm. as a BAME leader in the comms industry and yeah. it's the first time we've seen this term BAME in the yeah. mainstream narrative through COVID yeah. and through the BAME disproportionality of it and, and just yesterday the government cited yeah. that the protests that are happening around the world yeah. is a reason to delay yeah. the inquiry into these deaths um, mm -hmm. about fears that it may spark racial tensions and I, I, I sit there as an Asian person and I say well how do I engage with that and how do I where do I how do I navigate this and I guess my question to you is how would you help mm. leaders unpick this term BAME to really get to the nuance and also what does this decision of delaying an inquiry signal to you from the way our government is operating? Well I won't comment on what the government does or doesn't do. Um, you know, that's not my place to um, sort of comment on. But what I will talk about is um, around um, catch-all terms. And I know there's a lot of sort of controversy as to whether or not we should use them. And I think it's sort of in the main we should just because people 
know what it is. So when you say BAME, you're not having to explain. Um, but what's really important is for any organization um, to really drill down and to make sure that you understand the different lived experiences of the various ethnic groups and that there is a hierarchy of inclusion. And the closer your proximity is to whiteness, uh, the more you and more included you are. Um, and I think when we understand that, then we also know we need different solutions for different groups. Obviously, the bigger picture is we want to get to a place of equity for everybody. But we understand that some groups are more discriminated against than others. So if we're looking at society in general, the most discriminated groups are black people, but actually it's really black men. And then it's also Muslim men now. So if you look at the sort of statistics in the workplace in terms of the progression levels of Bangladeshi men, mainly Bangladeshi Muslim men, um, and black men, um, particularly black Caribbean men, there's such a disproportionate level in progression rates versus their other male counterparts. And then if you look at um, the same for women, and you drill down, again, we have serious issues with um, uh, um, uh, Bangladeshi women. And what we have with um, black women, actually, black women in a weird way actually earn, if we're looking in the round, actually earn more than white women. It's it's very interesting, like the sort of overall data. But when you drill down further, it's actually because they work more. Do you see what I mean? So, I, so you have more white women that are part-time workers and so on. So it's not like they're being paid more, it's that they're having to work more. And I think when we understand these issues, and we understand how they play out in the workplace, then we can create solutions for each of the various groups. But the bigger picture is getting to a place of equity for everyone. And also understanding that there are sort of intra issues within as well. And I think it's really important to look at this stuff honestly, but also never to forget where we're trying to get to because i think sometimes we get bogged down with the sort of the negativity and it sometimes seems a bit too much but actually if those of us that really believe in the kind of the better future the way society should be to hold on to that vision we can be custodians of it for everyone else we can sort of hold that safe space for when everyone else catches up with what we know society should be and I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Otherwise, it just sometimes you say, oh, God. <laughs> um, June, I've read a bit about this in your book, mm. Diversify. Uh, but you're talking about how, you know, w uh, women's earning potential there. In the uh, business that we're all in, in diversity inclusion, why are women even part of that conversation? <laughs> I mean, it's not like there's not many of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Women are part of that conversation because even though there's quite a lot of them and actually it's a tiny bit more, um, they're not being rewarded for that, are they? So it's, numbers doesn't seem to be the thing that determines success here. So, <laughs> so, so I think it's really about, you know, getting to the fact that, you know, we've created a world where a very small section of society, and actually the, the, what I often say is, the great thing about inequality is what it does for you is it shows you 
a really good framework for what works and what doesn't work. So we know what works. You know, it's funny when I first um, started at BBC, we were talking about why it's so important to understand how systemic inequality plays out and to not look at outliers as examples of what everybody else can do. So often what happens is when it's people of color or anybody diverse, when you've got one person that succeeded, it's like, well, if they could do it, why can't everybody else? And actually, when you look at their stories, there's always something. It's either a special set of circumstances or a designed intervention. In the same way, if you were to take a kid who went to Eton and then was Oxbridge educated, if that kid then became, I don't know, a bus driver or a dustbinman, we would know something went wrong because that system is not designed for that child to become a bus driver or a, or a refuse collector. And so why is it that in that case, we know that that person is an outlier, but in the reverse, we don't think they're an outlier. And so it's so important to understand what systems are designed to do, and that's how you dismantle them and build something else. So what we're doing for privileged, elite, white boys in our private school system, let's do the same for everybody else. And if we do that, I mean, the kind of potential we'll see unleashed is, is so exciting. That has summed up what was in my head when you were just talking about Muslim men as a Muslim man. When I read your book and I read that back, I thought, how how do I exist? Because I'm Muslim, I'm Indian, I'm gay, I'm gay. Like that is a Venn diagram that very few people are living in. And I, I thought, well, actually, you have to look at the, the mass, you have to look at the stats. And actually, if you look at Indian men, Indian men earn more than white men as the Chinese men. And it, it just made me think, and I, I, you know, the book is amazing, June, you have written the book on diversity. Like, did it feel quite heavy as you were going through that and what you were uncovering? What was that experience like? Not heavy. I just, I think for me, it's so weird. Even in all of the sort of bleak statistics, I felt hopeful. Because I still believe in the goodness of people in the sense that most people are just a product of their environment. You know what I mean? It's not personal. It's just how you were raised. And, and unless you are exceptional to think outside of your circumstances, you're just going to do what your parents did and what your community does. And I think when we can appeal to the better side of humanity and allow someone to experience that, because if you see inequality and you're able in your small way to do something about it, my God, what that makes you feel like as a human being in terms of understanding your personal power is unbelievable. At the moment, what we're doing is we're just using that personal power in a negative way. But if we can redirect it to much more positive outcomes, I think we'll get lots of people on board um, with the whole inclusion agenda. June, in, in your book, I actually listened to your book, but I think that really helped because tonally, um, it was, you know, it, it was delivered in a way that I didn't feel any pressure. I just felt like someone was talking to me, um, you know, and so yeah. I really recommend that for anyone that's listening to actually listen to it on Audible. Um, something I was going to ask, because uh, people will know you uh, or see you as um, 
a very confident woman, first of all, as a TV presenter, and then in the industry that you're in today, but we all suffer from crises of confidence as well. And, and, and I think this is really important for people to understand so that they can look at how they can do more to, to help. Uh, there is a bit in the book where you talk about Agnes, which is your not so fierce version of Beyonce's Sasha Fierce. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yeah, Agnes? Of course. So it's so funny. So a few years ago, a friend of mine, we were talking about our sort of inner self-critic and you know, how annoying it can be you in these really important pivotal moments, you know, you're sort of self-doubt takes over and you just self-sabotage and it's like what is that and it and so we were like you know what we have to name and shame her um and so like Beyonce Sasha Fierce where that's her sort of confident alter ego we were like what would you call your sort of annoying insecure alter ego and we're like what's the worst sort of annoying name we could come up with and we're like Agnes. And so, no offense to any Agnes's out there. And so um, that's why uh, we decided to name her. But it's been very helpful for me because when I'm able to sort of detach myself and almost become a sort of observer of my behavior, it means I then have a choice whether to sort of succumb to my insecure side or to actually decide to go with the positive and do something that we're scared of doing. And it's like anything, you know, think of all the things you learned as a kid. And so once you learned it, you then became, became second nature. And I think confidence is something that you have to practice because most of us have not been raised to have it. So June, you talked about being an observer of your own behavior. Yeah. And it's something that I often find. And I remember being taught as a kid to observe English behaviour and observe the people around you. So do you think there's something about who you are that's made you more in tune or able to observe yourself and reflect that back in? You know, it's so funny, Asad. I think so. So um, when I was 14, I think it was, I was hit by a car and I didn't walk for a couple of years. And then on top of that, I then had to wear a neck brace for another two years. So it literally took four years out of my life. Um, and so it meant that as a teenager, um, I had to really get comfortable with my own company and my own thoughts and learn how to not let my thoughts go against me because I was left alone with them. I had no choice. I was stuck in a bed. I couldn't move. And I think that what that did was it just meant that I just ask myself a lot of questions, you know, and constantly do. And, and also you then start looking at patterns. So I suppose a kind of contemplation that people maybe start in their thirties or whatever, if you're a 14 year old kid stuck in bed, not able to do anything, you start doing that much earlier on. And so it also meant that I developed a very um, sort of, deep relationship with God, spirit, whatever you want to call it. And and not necessarily in a sort of dogmatic religious way, but certainly in a spiritual way in that you sort of then start looking at what else there is. And I think that that, that means you, you do constantly observe your behavior. And also you decide what kind of person you want to be. Like, you know, do you want to be a person who when people around you, they feel better? Or do you want to be a person when people around you, they feel worse? You know, it is as simple as that. It's a choice. Well, June, I think you've landed on the former because I feel great chatting to you. <laughs> right. But do you know what I mean? But it's a choice. 
Like people think, oh, oh, it's just how you are. No, it's a choice in that actually, you know what, if I say that, that person's going to feel shit about themselves, even if I'm thinking it. You know what, keep your mouth shut until I've calmed down. And I think it's that stuff. There's two things you've you've made me think about. I think Ben's eyes said it all with um, when you talked about your your accent because we've been watching Never Have I Ever on Netflix, and um, it's well it's well worth watching. Um, Show in my life, tell me. Okay, so Never Have I Ever was written by Mindy Kaling, um, and tells the story of a um, of a American Indian girl, mm. and something similar happens to her. She gets hit hit by a car, and and she can't walk for a year. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the commentary around that show was about Indian representation in America. How a lot of young girls finally felt seen on screen. But actually, what what you've said is something that Ben and I talk about a lot, which is I think things happen to people in their lives, yeah. and it's up to you about how you respond. Yeah. So. For for you, it was um, your car accident. For me, I lost my dad at a young age, which shaped me. I think yeah. Ben Ben has said the same thing about um, losing his wife. Yeah. And how how does that come in the round with the diversity and inclusion debate? This idea that people have lived experiences oh. that travel with them. Yeah. I don't need to explain to you two. It impacts everything where this debate is concerned because you really understand the fragility of the human experience. One day can change your life overnight in ways you just cannot imagine. And when you meet someone, you never know what it is they're dealing with. So often we just take people based on how we find them and never stop to ask why they are the way they are. Even people who we don't get on with. You know, if you understand that person's journey, and even that's when we look at sort of those in our society that perhaps hold views that we don't agree with like often those of us that are on the liberal side of things you know we straight away demonize and call people out as xenophobic blah 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 blah, without trying to understand why they think that way and perhaps if you took a moment to look at that person's experience you might you wouldn't necessarily agree with it but you would understand how they got to that place and that's then how you're able to have a productive dialogue in terms of how we maybe encourage people to change and, and, and think differently on some of these issues. I don't know if we've actually ever spoken about this before, but Asad and I actually met over grief. He messaged me about, you know, because I was speaking quite publicly about bereavement and he yeah. got in touch and yeah. we actually didn't know each other professionally before that. It turns out we're in the same industry and now we run a business together. So it is amazing what a personal yeah. experience can do. It's, you know... Think these things are yeah. yeah it really is i remember i remember when chevy uh, a, a mutual friend of ours came in and said this has happened to a former colleague of mine i, I looked and that, that was 2012 and how how the world has evolved i mean isn't it i mean without getting too esoteric and oh no we love that business podcast after all but but isn't it a man? I, mean, I don't know if you believe in angels and all that stuff, but it's almost as if Assad, your father, Ben spoke to your wife, and it's like, you know what? These two kind of need each other. And, you know, let's orchestrate some stuff up here <laughs> to make sure that that happens down there. You know, it's, it is, it's amazing. It's amazing the things that 
you know, people can connect over. I'd say I remember a moment when it didn't make sense to me that someone could just die, that uh, that their energy had to go somewhere. And that was a, a, when I realised that, I thought, OK, these are the things that she wanted to do with her life. And maybe they can come to me a little bit, not to dominate my life, not to, you know, overtake it, but just to give it a little bit of purpose. And it has shaped an awful lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it, it helps you to get through it. Oh, for sure, yeah. Well, and it helps you, you know, raise that child as well. He he, open, he came yeah. up to me at 11 o'clock at night the other night and talked to me about racism when I thought he'd been asleep for two hours. And I just thought, so socially conscious. <laughs> We've got a mini Barack Obama here, haven't we? <laughs> June, don't let him hear you. <laughs> oh, no, we know what's coming. <laughs> well, his mum thought she was Beyonce, so, you know, he's going to set it quite high. Yeah, well, yeah, it had to be one of the two, didn't it? <laughs> uh, June, um, you've recently talked about now being the time to hardwire diversity and inclusion into the BBC. How yes. are you doing that? And, and and the creative industry mm. in general. Not yeah, just. I mean, we'd love to know what you're doing and how other organisations can learn from um, the BBC as well. Yeah. Well, I think that um, in terms of some of the stuff that we're doing, we are, what's lovely is at the highest level of the organisation, we are having really honest conversations around this issue constantly. And so at our ex-co meetings, it's not just me bringing it up, you know, it's also other leaders saying, what are we doing on this? How are we dealing with this? How can we have a DNI lens over everything that we do? And now the next piece of that is making sure that that sort of funnels down throughout the organization and that you empower um, line managers to also create their own bespoke version of whatever it is the vision that we're trying to achieve is. Because um, I think you have to allow people to create their idea of what this is. Otherwise, there's never true buy-in. We have uh, created an advisors program. So when I joined, um, there had already been a report um, by Tim Davey, uh, which recommended that there be at least 20% BAME representation on every leadership committee within the organization. Um, and when I joined, they were nowhere near hitting the leadership targets. So we're doing actually much better at lower levels, but certainly not in terms of the leadership target. And so I was very frank with Tony and credit to him, he got it and really supported myself and, and the sort of members of the uh, staff network that really pushed this through. And so they agreed that we would try to create a pipeline of talent that would be able to assume those roles um, pretty quickly. And we wanted to make sure we would have talent ready within two years. So we've created a diverse advisors program, which means that every co leadership committee will have at least two diverse advisors on there. They will be trained and upskilled. And then there's those that didn't get through are also going to be uh, really uh, uh, supported. And also the, the actual boards themselves are also going to have training on how to be inclusive. And so the idea being, once we get to the end of that two-year program, we should have a group, a big group of talent that really have the skill set in order to be able to go for those roles permanently. Um, and, and I think with these things, you have to act. You need to design interventions because this 
system of inequality was designed. It didn't just show up. You know, somebody thought it's a good idea if certain people do better than others. And so in order to create change, you have to design change. Um, so that's what we're looking at. And then obviously we have our river strategy that we launched a few weeks ago, and that's for our creative teams. And rivers stands for renew, invest, value, empower, reward, and sponsor. And that's really all about how you create a framework where diverse talent thrives um, in all of our creative teams, but also that talent from the majority group really understands the value of diversity and that they are also rewarded for doing the right thing. Well, June, I, lo I love a framework. I could see Ben smile when he when he's heard the word. <laughs> it's because I was about I think, to say, as I'd love I, to framework. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I think you're you're absolutely right. And I, I tried to talk about diversity today is where digital was 10 years ago where people said well do we need to be digital maybe we'll just get a digital person over there and, and they'll just think about it yeah and then consumer behavior changed in a big way yeah to a point where everyone's digital now and if you don't get it you're behind yeah. and blockbuster fell behind to netflix yeah. it's in the business case yeah. so look look Jean, i'm aware of time and we've 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 taken up a fair amount of yours oh um, i'm happy this been... this has been so much fun it, yeah, it really has. And I think you've you've opened my eyes to a lot, which is actually the, the personal stuff that happens in your life. And yeah. I think I think in lockdown, we've seen that we've seen everyone, everyone's been bringing their whole shelf to work yeah. rather than their whole self to work. And <laughs> <laughs> that's Ben's term. He can, I, I won't really? take that one. <laughs> yeah, we're bringing our whole shelf to work. <laughs> you can have it. You can have it too. I'll take it. Take it. But don't worry, I will credit the originator. Um, also, it's, it's funny because we were sort of, like doing interviews in different rooms and it's like yeah it's a whole <laughs> top down zoom etiquette or squad cast etiquette <laughs> and uh, i guess just to round off do, do you have any final thoughts for for anyone maybe who's working in diversity and inclusion or who's in this world thinking you know what what do i what can i learn from the person who's written the book on this um well i, I don't think necessarily anything you can learn from the person who's written the book on this but what you can learn uh, for yourself is actually taking a minute to have a meaningful conversation with someone who on the surface seems very different to you. I think it's really important, you know, who is that outcast at work? And can you be the person to bring them in? Um, because you could be giving that person such a lifeline. And who knows how your life will be enriched as, as a result too. So I think it's really, it's it's that, you know, it's that, you know, it sounds a bit sort of airy-fairy, but just seeing the, the, the humanity in people. It's been an absolute, an absolute pleasure, June. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you both so much. Uh, Thanks so much, June. Congratulations on the wonderful work that you're doing and hope to find ways to work together. Amazing. Thank you. See you, June. Take care, Bye. June. Bye. Bye. Making diversity everyone's business. That was such a brilliant conversation. It, it made me smile. I was smiling all the way through. We could see June, even though we're recording in isolation, if you like. We could see her face and she just brings so much joy to the conversation. And it, it just struck me. It made me wonder what people think about people that work in diversity and inclusion. I wonder if there's this perception of them being like stuck in HR, pushing paper, you know, demanding change, all of these things, but actually, She's just such a joy to work with. She's just a joy to talk to. And uh, what I was really struck with was 
what she said about life-changing events really paving a way for people to work in this industry is something that the three of us all had in common. Yeah, that's that's the bit that really stuck out for me of how much of that experience from the age of 14 to 18 has shaped her, how she sees the world, how she brings herself into places. And honestly, really inspiring to think that she has been such a trailblazer on TVs and now is doing off screen what she's been doing on screen for so many years. I, I think we can all learn a lot from her. And the bit that came out for me, Ben, from there was the bit about honest conversations and actually how many honest conversations are we having today? I think there's a certain security we're all feeling about being at home and being comfortable and being in our own environments. And I wonder, is that helping us to have honest conversations or do we really need to be in a room for them to be as impactful as they could be? I partly wonder as well whether being at home and being around so much heavy news recently, particularly going through the COVID-19 crisis, um, has made us realise how surface we can be in our consumption of news. Like, actually, we're finding out that to get any real story, we've got to dig quite deep. And that's quite new. I think people have been used to using things like Twitter as their only news source, but now people are really having to dig deeper than that because they know that that's how governments kind of get away with things. You know, if people only go for the for the headline, then they'll only talk in daily news briefings with the headlines. And so when I think about that from a diversity and inclusion perspective, the ability or the, or the way it's encouraging people to find out more about racism, that's what I've seen, uh, particularly this week, is people challenging themselves to actually learn more and not just retweet stuff, because actually, People are being called out for it, fairly as well. People are being called out saying, you know, oh, well done, you sent a tweet, you've solved racism. Well, I think the, the bit that really nailed it in what June was saying is talk to someone that you wouldn't talk to normally. And that's what we've set out to do in this Speak Easier is help to have difficult conversations that people might be too afraid to have or not really know how to do it. So I, I'm excited to think about what this could lead to and where we might go next with it. And I think... If anything, we should all take away who is that one person I'm going to have a chat with or call in rather than call out, as Laker and our team would say, to really think inclusively rather than consume a tweet or an Instagram post on it. And on that note, there we are, the end of another episode of The Speak Easier, possibly our favourite to date, but they always are so good, so it's hard to call any favourites out. Um, we are Ben and Assad, we've been The Unmistakables, and if you aren't already, follow us on at underscore unmistakables. The Speak Easier podcast by the unmistakables.